Are you or your loved ones looking to secure and manage your Bitcoin with confidence? The Bitcoin Advisor is your premier destination for professional Bitcoin management, helping you buy, secure and manage your Bitcoin so you can own intergenerational wealth and sleep easy. With a reputation built on unparalleled security, strategic planning and comprehensive client education, the Bitcoin Advisor team have managed over $1 billion in assets without losing a single Satoshi since 2016. Whether you're new to Bitcoin or a seasoned investor, the Bitcoin Advisor team are there to guide you every step of the way. So please click on the link below to organize yourself a consultation and include the name Carrie, C-A-R-R-I, in the referral code so that they know that I've sent you their way. Hello and a big warm welcome. Incredibly grateful to have on board with me today, Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer of the Human Rights Foundation. Welcome aboard to Bitcoin People, Alex. Thanks for having me. It's amazing to have you here. Thank you so much for your time. And I know your time is very limited today, but I'd like to get into a bit about your book, Hidden Repression, and how the IMF and World Bank sell exploitation as development. And I also want to understand just a bit about you as a person, because it's been a journey for you. And I want to actually kick off with a quote, if you don't mind, that comes from the author's note at the beginning. Uh, sure. And you say this, you say, it's one thing for global institutions to be corrupt trying to help the poor, but failing along the way. It's another thing entirely for the intent of these institutions to be to take from the weak and give to the strong. Mm -hmm. That's such a huge statement and it hit me so hard when I read it. And then of course you follow it up with all the empirical evidence and all the stories of how the IMF actually function and the World Bank together to exploit developing nations and the global south. Before we get into those details and those examples, that process of coming to terms with understanding the deliberateness, the conscious way in which the IMF and World Bank go about this, how have you managed that personally? Well, I think that my own journey into understanding how global economics, trade, financial systems work is kind of colored by, you know, learning about Bitcoin. At the beginning, most of one's journey in understanding Bitcoin is relevant to what's around them and is, let's say, domestic, uh, you know, for example, Whoever Satoshi was, they took issue with the British government's policy of bailing out banks in the wake of the global financial crisis. And a lot of early Bitcoiners came from the Occupy Wall Street movement. And, you know, it's likely that Satoshi probably came from one of those countries. Uh, maybe, maybe not. But a lot of the early, early Bitcoin folks uh, were upset uh, by the betrayal of the money system by the authorities. It was not just some cypherpunk privacy um, journey. It, it, it was very much about monetary policy and about uh, centralized institutions and governments abusing the power of the mint. So 
that's something that I think most people who learn about Bitcoin encounter very early in, in their journey, one way or another, uh, is, is, is understanding how the government is sort of manipulating the money system. So that said, my work has really focused on the international aspect of that. And there's not just exploitation domestically, there's also exploitation globally. It's similar to, to Marxism, I think, in some ways, right? Where you had Marx and his acolytes observe, uh, you know, uh, inequities in a company or uh, a corporation down the street. And, and then they, you know, and then they also keenly observed global inequities. And while I have different conclusions than those folks, I think it's right to understand that there's two, two layers here. Uh, there's, mm-hmm. you know, repression inside of a particular country. And then there's a, a sort of a global repression. And that's made possible by what I call the currency caste system. And that's where probably any of my future research and writing will be is looking at the fact that you have all these different uh, fiat currencies and they arrange themselves or they are arranged in uh, a triage, you know, an order, a hierarchy. And the people who live in the upper echelons of the hierarchy enjoy massive privileges over the people who live towards the bottom. Mm. And this is not something that people can choose to, to sort of uh, opt out of until recently and that that to me is is what bitcoin's all about is escaping from this uh the system that i document in my work i've got to say as i uh as i went through your book the idea that went through my mind was a you're absolutely right there's this concept that we think of the cantillon effect within a nation those closest to the money printer glean the greatest uh, opportunities but what it does what your book does and what your work does is expand that out into the global concept of those at the highest echelons closest to the money printers around the world and the the relationship that goes on between the WEF and and World Bank IMF with the central banks of the world really creates frankly what came up for me was almost a hunger games effect and those in districts, you know, in the, the I can't even remember the name of the, the CBD, the kind of main city of the Hunger Games, I've forgotten the name of it. But then you've got mm. these districts one and two, those closest to the main city have the greatest opportunity and it just decreases from there. So let's go through just a couple of examples, if you don't mind, of where you perceive there's very deliberate uh, exploitation going on. You talk a lot about restructures. You talk about aid, that it is not in the least bit aid, but is a cover up for what's really going on, which is simply putting Western organizations in there and that money flowing out to the West. So basically it's a transfer of wealth from the poorest nations in the world to the wealthiest. And I wonder if you could just take us through some of those examples. Yeah, and again, it's not that dissimilar from domestic uh, analysis. For example, easy monetary policy in the United States um, has overwhelmingly benefited the 1% at the expense of the bottom 50%. You can look at this in the wealth share uh, going back to 1990. 
Alan Greenspan, as Fed chair, presided over what is known as ZERP or you know, zero interest rate monetary policy. This began in the early 90s. So if you compare you know, wealth share back then to today, uh, of the bottom 50%, it, it, it decreased from like a third to, to a quarter or something like that, which is hugely significant. And, and those are all gains that went to the very top. Um, so that's the domestic point of view. Uh, internationally, it is similar. You have policies that are followed, which might make sense that underneath are actually repressing. That's why my book is called Hidden Repression. Um, you have aid and development policies, which appear on the surface to be quite obviously altruistic or in some way helping and then when you dig deeper, you realize they're perpetuating and expanding inequities. And that's like the big realization I had in the last few years that I didn't really realize before. I think that orthodoxy interprets aid and development as, as being wasteful, but probably good intentioned, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's probably what most people think of when they think about aid. Some people just may have an overall rosy view. But a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, well, only a certain percentage of the money I send gets to the recipient. Uh, we should be doing more. I mean, that, that's what you hear a lot about in the mainstream economic orthodoxy is we're not, we're not doing enough lending uh, to poor countries and we're not giving them enough capital and we're not uh, giving them enough aid. So this is, this mm -hmm. is, you know, the overall orthodoxy, live aid, all these fundraisers, like we, we, these people are starving. We should give them more aid. Um, that is profoundly incorrect in my view, in as much as, the aid and development industry as a whole is mainly lending, not gifts, A. Uh, and there, there certainly are issues with gifts, generally speaking, but clearly grants and aid can be very positive. I'm not really criticizing that so much because that's a small percentage of the overall development budget and the overall activity of what is known as you know, development per bilateral institutions like the IMF and World Bank. Every major rich country sort of has one that helps regionally as well. Um, what these institutions do primarily are loans. And first of all, they make money on the loans, which is not something most people realize. Mm -hmm. They're not altruistic. Yep. Most people think about these institutions as like, you know, oh, they come in and they save or rescue or they, they fund something no one else is willing to fund. Well, uh, just on the straight financials, they make a lot of money because these are pretty high interest rate loans, generally speaking. In the last few decades, there's been some debt relief for very, very, very poor countries. Um, but you have to remember, very, very, very poor countries constitute a tiny fraction of the overall uh, borrowing. Most borrowing is done by mid-income poor, you know, quote unquote, poor countries. Um, places like Brazil, Argentina, Indonesia, Pakistan, Egypt, etc. You know, Burkina Faso is not constituting a huge amount of borrowing. So when we write off their debt or or give them interest free debt, that might be helpful. It probably isn't actually, but even if it was, it's it's we're not talking about reducing the actual overall debt burden of these countries, which has gone exponential since since the fiat age in the early seventies. Um, so in reality, you, you you're you're making money off these countries via loans, it's similar to a mortgage, right? Like you borrow X amount and you have to pay back principal plus interest. That's pretty massive. Mm -hmm. um, 
and beneath that, there's something called the double loan, which is pretty pretty dominant actually over the last 75 years, potentially less so today, but certainly very dominant in the formative years of a lot of these quote unquote developing countries, which is where the former colonial power, let's say Britain, France, you know, th they would extend a loan of a, let's say 10 million uh, euros to uh, pounds, dollars, whatever. Uh, let's just use euros for now. 10 million euros to a West African country that they formerly had influence or control over. <laughs> so let's say France gives 10 million euros to the Ivory Coast to build a port. Uh, the money would go from France to the Ivory Coast. And then immediately the, the Ivorian hire companies to do the work. So those companies are French. So the money goes right back to French economy immediately. But the Ivorians have to pay back principal plus interest. So this is what's known as a double loan. And this actually defines a huge amount of development. Um, and it's, it's sort of a secret, again, a secret repression. Um, another thing that these uh, countries get um, is what, what's known as um, structurally adjusted. So A, we make money off these countries, but B, we, we, we can engineer them. So when one of these countries takes a big loan from a bilateral institution, namely the IMF or World Bank, they have to satisfy a bunch of conditions. And really what those conditions are, are conditions to make stuff that that country produces cheaper for us to buy as rich countries. Hmm. So when we loan, it's not just to bail a country out so that it can meet its liquidity requirements. It's not, it's not just to provide a loan so that they can build a dam. That's, that's not what's going on here. There's a deeper layer where what's happening is the conditions uh, taken by the borrower include, for example, devaluing a currency, raising taxes, ending subsidies on healthcare or food or education, basically causing a recessionary environment. And the goal here is to sort of deflate wages and streamline spending, right? So the um, worker in these countries or the resource in these countries that's being targeted, that, that's being used by us, um, the incentive structure is that we want that as cheap as possible. So while we in our countries provide things like healthcare and insurance sometimes and um, all kinds of like, we, like there are even in the most sort of capitalistic countries, there's extensive protections on workers. Of course, leftists would say they're not nearly enough. That's a different conversation. The point is, in many wealthy post-colonial advanced nations, there are is free health care to some extent. There's free education to some extent. There's all kinds of workers' rights, ability yeah. to sue the government, ability to leak God knows what. I mean, there's all kinds of, of stuff that people would say. Typically, people would say these are positive things. Poor countries aren't allowed to have these things if they take these loans, and most of them do take these loans. So you take a loan, not only can you not like provide subsidies for fuel or, or you know, rice or wheat, whatever, mm. bread, uh, you know, you, 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 the country's devaluing the currency, so it's hurting the people's incomes. And, and not, it's not like they're getting raises, so they're just getting poorer. The amount of time they have to work for the same amount of bread or meat or rice is, is increasing. Um, and at the same time, you know, the, 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 the cost for us to purchase the gold or the oil or the textiles is, is going down. So um, that's, that's really the, the, the second part of it is the structural adjustment. The third piece is dependency in agriculture. So you have just straight profiteering. You have, number two, you have 
wage devaluation and and you know getting cheaper resources through structural adjustment and number three you have agricultural dependency so another thing that's done through this is to focus these countries on making stuff that we want uh as opposed to stuff that they might need and that's that's due to the currency system so because of the currency system these poor countries cannot print their own fiat to buy things like oil or tractors or meat or whatever like Boeing is not going to accept Ghanaian CDs from the Ghanaian government. Mm -hmm. They will accept dollars, maybe euros. Um, so the Ghanaian government has to get dollars or euros. How's it going to do that? It can't print them. And if it tries to buy them, it's going to cause hyperinflation in the CD. So what it has to do is sell stuff to us or, or provide some service to us. And there's not a whole lot that we want from Ghana except for X, Y, and Z, right? So mm -hmm. for a lot of these tropical, quote-unquote, developing countries, um, you know, that that turns out to be like, you know, inedible exports like cocoa, coffee, tea, uh, obviously raw minerals from the ground, uranium, gold, bauxite, and, and, you know, extremely cheap labor. So that that's what those governments end up focusing their efforts on instead of developing industry or uh, creating a, a benefit or welfare system, etc. So that's how this like... Uh, the inequalities of the global system get worse and worse and worse over time, even though innovation and technology are driving progress. Human progress is driven forward. It's undercut by this exploitative system. So while capitalism is indeed um, at its, at its, in its theoretical, you know, arrangement, certainly improving the lot of the world, there are non-capitalistic factors. There are centralized political factors uh, that relate to the currency system that are hurting a lot of people, whereby there could be decades that pass in some of these countries where your life expectancy could actually go down um, or, or your cost of living can go up in real terms. This is very common for, for the developing world, which, which most people would just be like, could, could not understand. And I guess to conclude, the point is that these developing countries, you realize they're not developing at all. They're, they're mm. de-developing. So they're moving away from an effort to try and become independent, um, create real wealth through building stuff that can be sold at a profit to the world, uh, like a car or an airplane or some high-tech services. Mm. Um, and they are choosing to de-develop. Like Brazil is a great example. Like the economy of Brazil has gone from, uh, has simplified, meaning it is it is now more reliant on producing raw commodities than it was 20 years ago that's called de-development so this is what happens to like the vast majority of the world under this system and i think bitcoin like quite obviously would disrupt this because the re the way that that whole system is implemented is through the currency cast system you have one fiat for this country and another fiat for this country so that country can agree to like basically devalue that fiat to, to get bailed out. You know, it's usually these dictators or unaccountable rulers that make these decisions anyway. You know, if we're all using Bitcoin and we have one open neutral global currency standard, there, there's certainly going to be poor countries and rich countries. I'm not arguing that it solves that, but you, you can't do this. Like if, if your wages are denominated in Bitcoin in Nigeria and in Newark, New Jersey, then, you, you know, the ability of the local authorities to do financial repression is pretty limited because it's one currency. Um, 
it, 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 it's, it's something to really look forward to in my view is, is a world where there's just sort of one currency standard. It really unites people. I think it'll cause arbitrage in labor markets. And, you know, again, it won't, it won't sort of, um, it's not going to be some panacea. I mean, there's, there's very good reasons why you'd want your business and your economic activity in New Jersey and not in Nigeria. But in general, especially for a lot of this new work that's being done digitally, it should really help close that wage gap. Um, and, you know, in general, if this proceeds, allow these poor countries to have more control over their trade. Because again, currently, the only way they can get the reserve currency, which is needed to pay for energy and debt, and weapons and whatever else, the really good stuff that they need you know, in their eyes, right? What, what does a dictator mm -hmm. want? Or what does a government want? Um, you know, they can't pay for that stuff with fiat, with their own fiat. Well, um, you know, in a future world, I think it's just going to be more fair because each country can turn any kind of electricity source into, into the reserve currency without permission from an empire. So today you like, the only way to get dollars really is to have some sort of permission or interaction with a dollar issuer uh, the euro dollar market is an imperfect way around that it, it, it's it's still pretty controlled um you know it's still sort of western banks controlling that market uh if you are some sort of sanctioned entity or poor country that's not like super helpful for you um so mm -hmm. i just see that being a huge equalizer in terms of like any country can just turn electricity into bitcoin today to get us treasuries or dollars it's like you have to be you know there's politics to it so anyway i hope that helps this episode of bitcoin people proudly brought to you by bit refill your one-stop shop for living on bitcoin and lightning and building out the bitcoin economy and the bitcoin standard world we would all love to see come to fruition they've got all the best gift cards like amazon apple bunnings airbnb uber and much more Coles and Woolies for your groceries, Bill Fairies to pay your bills, BP and Ampol for your petrol. You can do your hotel bookings or top up your phone credit or buy a gift or phone credit for a friend or loved one overseas. So check them out today, bitrefill.com and remember to include Bitcoin people in the referral code for 10% Bitcoin back on your first purchase. It really does. Um, it's uh, it, Even though there's quite a long answer there, it's actually an incredibly succinct a summary of how the world operates fundamentally. The people at the top of these food chains know precisely what they're doing and what's going on. Are they fundamentally evil? How can someone do what they're doing and, and live with themselves or live in the world? And we're not just talking one or two people at the top of the, uh, at the top end here. We're talking massive organizations who are all involved in this and are aware of, of what they're doing and will fight back against Bitcoin to the best of their ability, even though that even though we know that's not actually physically possible in the long run. So uh, two questions, what kind of a person is in that position and B, what kind of a backlash do you see coming? I mean, look, I think most people are honestly ignorant about this. You could go through extensive university education at the top universities in the West and not know this. Right. And when you look at this kind of content, you might reflexively draw back from it and say, that can't be real. And I think that's what someone like I might have done, right, 10 years ago. Um, 
So the book is written for those people. It's not written for people in the global South or developing countries. Like they know exactly what's going on. I mean, they, yeah. they've lived it, right? Um, the book is for people in uh, Europe, United States, Australia, Canada, et cetera. So mm. Japan. Um, so the, the, the book is for economic people living in economic powers. Um, you know, I, I, I think the first step is just being open to it and, and, and trying to grok it and, understand that our success is built because of two main things one of course is our values and our incredible achievements and our freedoms and our innovations and the way those things blend together to make progress and uh, that's that's really important and human rights is a big part of that like obviously you're going to have much more advancement in a country that gives women every opportunity as a man than you will under like Taliban led Afghanistan. This is like really obvious to me. So, so there's clearly like a lot of freedoms, innovations, capitalistic stuff. That's really positive. That's pushed us forward in rich countries. What has at the same time also helped push us forward is exploiting poor countries. Mm -hmm. So I think that most people just don't really like to think about that. So what you do with that is in your own hands. I choose to work on Bitcoin because I think that Bitcoin will put a heavy dent in this uh, and will help improve our countries. Too many critics of the West end up simping for dictators. It's pathetic, actually. Um, the correct answer is to recognize the sins and flaws of our own nations and then improve them. I mean, I, I, I don't know why this is hard for people to understand. You know, if you're Australian and you're upset about the violations of the human rights of the aborigin aborigines um well then you need to fix that the, the answer is not to become like some sort of police state uh there's way too many people in the west who point to the crimes of the u.s and say well whatever like let's just support china or russia or something like that it's just total lunacy so people need to um realize we can improve ourselves there have been improvements and it probably won't come by permission, though. You'll have to ask for forgiveness. So the system is so deeply ingrained, the global currency system, the, the currency caste system. It's it's so deeply ingrained. It's like the Orwell quote. It's like uh, right in front of your nose so you can't see it. And the only way to change it is to literally prevent them from doing it. And that's what Bitcoin does. Bitcoin creates a new system that they can't stop and they're forced to deal with. I can't really see any optionality being part of the solution here. The, the powers that be will take advantage and exploit any sort of quote unquote reform. Um, th this is not a reform. This is a new system, which is, yeah. which is honestly pretty exciting. So that's, that's, that's why I'm, I'm bullish on Bitcoin ultimately is because I think it'll completely change the currency paradigm of the world. And there's an inevitability about it in the way that you speak about it as well. Uh, a movie that's uh, taken the world by storm recently is The Sound of Freedom. I don't know how much you know about that. How does Bitcoin help slavery, human trafficking, child trafficking, sex trafficking? What's your insight into that? I would say that's very complex. I don't know if mm -hmm. it has a net negative or positive impact in its first few decades right i think that there's two factors there one is that a lot of victims 
are victims because they don't have identity. Yep. They are refugees first and then slaves, right? So this this is pretty common. Yep. So Bitcoin will allow people to earn good money without needing to necessarily have a passport or an ID. Yeah, That's pretty big. I mean, it gives property rights to everybody. So I think that's massively helpful in this question mm-hmm. about slavery. Um, it, but that's a, that's a multi-decade shift. Yeah. I, I don't know if it helps short term. I mean, obviously human traffickers uh, are going to be some of the first to adopt any new innovation. I mean, you know, I'm sure that most human traffickers use signal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so could we say that encrypted messaging has been good for civil liberties? Of course, without question, but bad people use it too. You know, any truly big digital innovation like that is gotta be equal opportunity. It's gonna affect everybody. It can't be like selective. Yes. Otherwise it becomes a tool for control. So. I don't know. I don't know if there's there's really any any connection in the short term there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just don't see it. But but maybe 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 longer term, this idea that it gives anybody property rights is is, is is could be could be pretty massive. I think. Have you been? Do you worry about? Have you been censored? Do you worry about backlash from the IMF from the WEF for speaking the way that you do? for speaking up and out on behalf of the global South about what's actually going on there? I mean, not really. I mean, there's been a couple of people who've tried to get into a back and forth and have displayed their ignorance. Uh, I, I think they'd prefer to ignore me. So look, the more, uh, I, the more we can push, mm-hmm. uh, the less they'll be able to ignore. So my goal is just to help as many people as possible have conversations about this topic. I mean, maybe they disagree. Great. Let's have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately it's more of just, you know, it's an education piece. It's like, here's what happened. Um, I have no faith that the current system, no faith whatsoever that the current system would adapt by itself or fix itself. There's a, there's a um, scholar that I relied on heavily for a lot of my work. Her name is Cheryl Payer. And she wrote in the 70s and 80s and 90s about the debt trap. And um, I, I was able to, uh, to through, 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 through a friend, uh, you know, have a correspondence with her recently. And I saw that she was basically like, it's way worse than it was before, right? So someone who had this deep insight was completely helpless beyond education to mm-hmm. stop it. And that's why we need Bitcoin. It will not be, you know, the people in charge of this thing will not choose to reform. They have to, they have to have their hand forced. Otherwise they'll just continue to plunge countries into the debt trap around the world. Yeah, indeed. Okay. I'm very conscious of your time and I know that Mm -hmm. you are limited. Can I ask you one last question? It's based around this quote that you have towards the end of the book. It's, um, I may not get her name, uh, I may not pronounce this correctly, Farida Nabarima, am I saying that right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Doesn't understand why leftists in general condemn or ignore Bitcoin. Her words, Mm -hmm. a tool that is capable of allowing people to build and access wealth independent from institutions of control can be seen as a leftist project. 
As an activist that believes that citizens should be paid in currencies that actually value their life and sacrifices, Bitcoin is a people's revolution. What is going on with the left, Alex? Why are they not embracing this to the same degree that libertarians and perhaps more right-leaning folk appear to be? It should be. I mean, there's a lot of there's there's a lot there. I mean, number one, the environment stuff. There's been a massive amount of gaslighting about Bitcoin and the environment. Yep. Uh, in reality, Bitcoin will be very helpful for humans when it comes to energy and reducing carbon. They don't mm-hmm. understand that though yet. Uh, listeners should follow the work of Daniel Batten, who's a Kiwi uh, entrepreneur, climate entrepreneur. If you're interested yep. in learning more about that, or perhaps Troy Cross, a philosopher. Um, needless to say, that's a rabbit hole we can't go down right now. Uh, but they've been they've been fooled on that. So most people think in the left that the Bitcoin's bad for the environment and wasteful. We should do something else. That, mm-hmm. that, that time will be time will be the only thing that can erode that and dispense that. Uh, but the the other thing is a little more deep seated is um is the the idea of money itself. I mean, a lot of leftists believe that are chartalists essentially that money is the creature is a creature of the state. Mm-hmm. And that it cannot be a privately held commodity or something that occurs outside of the state. So they, they can't really grapple or grok with Bitcoin at all, which is unfortunate because that's that's just a philosophical, theoretical belief they have. It's not actually structured on evidence because Bitcoin is a thing and it exists and people use it. So they're like in denial on that. So they're going to have to dispense with that as well. But once they do that, I think it's going to be pretty interesting because... I mean, Bitcoin's an incredible wage technology for laborers and workers. Uh, I, I think that most workers around the world will absolutely be excited once they fully learn everything about Bitcoin at the optionality in investing some of their wages in this technology versus their local fiat currency. And I think that it will, again, reduce sort of like surplus value of labor. Like a lot of that is fiat currency is my point. So a lot of the stuff that Marx was pissed about rightfully so, uh, some of that can be fixed by fixing the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all of it can be fixed, of course, but some of it can, some of it can. So, you know, I don't know, like, you know, unions are very important. Like Bitcoin is orthogonal to that. I don't think it really helps that much, but when it comes to the currency exploitation, uh, it could be a big deal. So it'll just take time. But I think that we're, we're some years away from that, but I am, optimistic there are quite a few people who are progressive in a global context who are really excited about bitcoin there's some progressive politicians in the united states some progressive groups starting to come around to it i mean look it's like email at the end of the day it's we could we could finish with this it's it's a technology like email are you going to send me an email or write me a letter in the post well you're probably going to email me and you probably don't care what the politics are of the people who created email. It's completely irrelevant. <laughs> That's eventually what we're going to be looking at here is an, a left-wing NGO needing to send value to a left-wing grantee in the Amazon. I mean, what are they going to do? They're going to use fiat money? No, they're going to use Bitcoin. So um, it, it's just going to be as simple as that. And, and I think that will end up helping to change some of the illusions around Bitcoin when it comes to the environment and the nature of money itself that that currently prevent people from being able to understand it. So it's just about tech in the end on that front. Uh, but as far as what we can do today, you know, the most important thing we can do is educate people about this thing. I mean, the, the, for all the talk of improving Bitcoin or 
this or that or uh bitcoin's fine like it works really well and 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 it is so so far from meeting what it could do today and and the gap is education so that's why i choose to focus on that so again thanks for having me on i appreciate uh, your time a pleasure having you here thank you so much for joining me appreciate it and all the best with everything sure you do, alex all the best thank you Ciao. take care think about the qualities of what makes a good money it's really scarce it's durable it's divisible it's fungible it's it's all of these things and bitcoin has certain advantages over past forms of money obviously gold is very expensive to transport it's expensive to verify uh, but it does maintain some reasonable level of scarcity over time but fiat as an example is not scarce and that's one of the big, big problems. But it is easy to transport fiat around the world. And then Bitcoin, obviously, it sort of, it meshes and has the best of all of those worlds because it is hard to produce and it can be transported easily and it can be verified very cheaply compared to all of these other things because you can't even verify how much USD there is, right? You've just mm -hmm. got the US Fed and they basically backstop the financial system and they just keep bailing them out if something goes wrong. And there are no bailouts in Bitcoin. 